Thank you. Uh, a couple of caveats before I get started. First of all, hello. Um, number one, I was sick earlier this week, and so my voice hasn't quite caught up with my, the rest of my body's recovery, so if I'm drinking a lot slash pausing a lot, you know, I don't have to keep explaining it. Secondly, I have asked for a special dispensation from our tech team uh, in the back that we do not put any scripture on the screen today. Not only am I a Luddite at heart, but, but what's the word that's going to come to us today from Micah was written in a poem. And I, think it, I feel like it's very important for us to hear those words. And, and I would say don't even try to follow along in your Bibles, which I know is anathema today, but don't. Because I'm going to be giving you a translation that you don't even have. This is from the literary uh, scholar Robert Alter, and it's beautiful. So... So just prepare yourselves. Let's, let's just listen. Let us take this in. So those are the caveats for this morning. So let's get into Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. And he starts like this. Gash yourself, Gashing's daughter. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they strike on the cheek the judge of Israel. And you, Bethlehem of Ephrath, the least of Judah's clans, from you shall come forth one from, for me, whose origins are from ancient times, from days of yore. From you shall come forth one for me, whose origins are from ancient times, from days of yore. Therefore shall he give them over. Till the time the woman in labor bears her child. Till the time the woman in labor bears her child. And the rest of his brothers return with the Israelites. And he shall stand and shepherd them in the might of the Lord. By the pride of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure. And they shall dwell secure. And they shall dwell secure. For his name shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he himself will be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now here we are in the season of Advent, as Joel already mentioned, and the word Advent, as you may know, comes from the Latin word that means arrival. So in this season, as has you know, traditionally been observed, we as God's people await the arrival of Christ. And this is not a season of arrival, but a season of the anticipation of arrival. This is a season of waiting. It's a season in which we embrace the ache Though it breaks our hearts, that ache of all that is not yet. That's what this season is for. And we're not play-acting during Advent. I know we always focus on the birth of Christ, but that's actually for the season of Christmas time. Advent is for anticipating that. And we're not play-acting here because we are truly awaiting an arrival. The Bible speaks, as you have heard us say here many times before, the Bible speaks of two different Advents. The first 
is when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. And then the second is when he arrives at the end of history to usher in his glorious kingdom. And it is the second advent for which we wait. It is this second advent for which we ache and, and reach out for the horizon and cry, how long, O Lord? That's the arrival we wait for. But waiting is the one thing we do not want to do. We are a people who prize above all else arrival, which means that the season of Advent, in my opinion, is more important for us than maybe any other people on the planet. And in order to humble ourselves and be apprenticed to this invitation, of the season of Advent, we're gonna spend some time with Micah this morning. And as Nick has mentioned, Micah wrote these prophecies during the siege of Jerusalem, and God's word for his people in the midst of that siege is, is kind of disturbing on the surface, but if we plunge beneath those surface waters, what we're gonna find is that God's word to his people in the midst of that siege are beautiful, but they are also his word for us in this Advent season. And the word is this. In the midst of the siege, wait. In the midst of the siege, wait. Now, this poem from Micah, we're gonna see how Micah reveals that message in three headings. Number one, we're gonna look at the siege itself. Number two, we're gonna look at God's promised deliverance from the siege, and then number three, how do we enter fully into that deliverance? So number one, the siege. He begins by saying, gash yourself, gashing's daughter, gash yourself, gashing's daughter. This is how he identifies the Israelites. You are gashing's daughter. It's a way of mourning physically. They have laid siege against us. They have struck the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Now, in order for Micah's vision of hope to make any, like, tangible, real sense to us sitting here in this room, we have to allow ourselves to feel the trouble that they are in. He says they have laid siege against us. So who is the they in this line? Well, it's the Assyrians under the leadership of Sennacherib. And I have to tell you that um, to have the Assyrians outside of your walls would have been a very fearful thing. The Assyrians, by this point in history, had perfected the terrible art of siege warfare. And if you have no idea what siege warfare is, then let me just try to explain it briefly. In the ancient world, uh, if you wanted to defend your city, which you did, you built walls around it, thick, strong, tall walls to surround the interior. And that means that any foes that you had couldn't just destroy the city. They had to get through the walls first. And so when he says, when Micah says, they have laid siege against us, we're not talking about like a pitched battle out in a field with hand-to-hand -hand combat. To have siege laid upon you was to gather all of your people inside the walls, inside of that stronghold, and hope against hope for weeks or maybe months that the enemy would, be, would prove unable to penetrate those walls. And that was a decent strategy. That was a decent strategy until the Assyrians rose to ascendancy. They had a three-pronged attack when it came to siege warfare, and that meant almost any walls, any city walls, given enough time, would be breached. So first, 
they perfected the technology of the battering ram. Second, they had a corps of engineers who knew exactly how to excavate the earth and build earthworks, ramps up the wall. And then third, they had a whole army full of diggers, people who knew how to dig under walls. So they're crunching the walls from the middle, they're trying to get over the top, they're trying to go underneath, and eventually the walls would always give way. And so Sennacherib has his sights set upon taking Jerusalem. And as all God's people, like, like, feel this, feel this, as all God's people are huddled within the walls of Jerusalem, day after day, they can hear that pulverizing crunch of the battering rams against the walls. Day after day, they can see the earthworks rising, being piled against the walls, rising higher day by day and hour by hour. And day after day, they can hear the scratching of the shovels that are working to get underneath the walls. And all they can do is wait. All they can do is wait for their doom to fall upon them. And by Micah's reckoning, King Hezekiah, who's the king during this time, King Hezekiah was impotent to stop the assault. He says that the king, whom he calls in this text that we looked at, he calls him the judge of Israel, that he has been struck on the cheek by the rod of the Assyrians. And in the ancient world, to be struck on the cheek was the ultimate insult. It was to be so defenseless that you couldn't even defend your face from the, uh, from the assault of your enemies. The king cannot save these people. That is what Micah is saying. And so this is what they're facing, and the only thing that people want is for God to save them. And so this is the situation into which Micah is going to speak hope to these people. But we have to stop for a moment because a sermon <clears throat> is not just a history lesson on the Assyrians, and you know, as interesting as that is to people like me, it's not just about the Assyrians and the Jews holed up in the city of Jerusalem. A sermon needs to be a fresh word for God's people today, right here, in this moment. And so, if we're gonna hear God's word for us today from a text like this, we have to discover what we have in common with the, with the Jews who are in the walls of Jerusalem, with the people of God who are besieged, <coughs> excuse me, in this situation. And at first, that sounds like it presents a very big problem because which of us has ever been in that situation? Like, how many of us have been inside of an ancient city and the walls are, and the Assyrians are coming? No, none of us, as far as I know. Um, but here's where I tell you that we actually do know what this situation is like. And that sounds surprising, I know, but let me remind you, let me remind you that Micah's prophecy comes to us in the form of a poem. Yeah, I know, I know, you're all ex excited like I am about this. Now, that is actually astonishing to me because think about this first, just think about it. In the midst of this horrific situation that the people of God find themselves in, God gives a word to Micah. God gives a word of deliverance to Micah. And he says, you have to tell my people this word. But instead of receiving that message and running through the streets with his hair on fire, screaming to the people this message from the Lord, God says, hold on, 
I want you to sit down. I want you to take up your pen. I want you to write this in a poem. I want you to make sure that you commit this message to verse. Make sure the parallel structure is tight. Make sure there's the same number of syllables in each line, as, you know, in this line as there are in that line. And that sounds crazy to me. Why in the world would God direct Micah to compose poetry while the Assyrians are busy breaking down the walls? And here's why. Because poetry's tools... Poetry's tools, namely metaphor and simile, meter and rhythm, hyperbole and consonance and the rest, those tools work on two levels. Now, stay with me. I, if you hated poetry in high school, you still hate poetry, and you, whatever, you, you're tempted to glaze over now. I'll come back when I start saying something interesting. But this, trust me, this is the interesting thing. So stay with me. Stay with me. When poets cast their message into poetry with its rhythmic meter and its vivid metaphor, its searing symbolism, the message in that form does double duty. First, it speaks to the historical audience in the midst of their very real historical situation. But second, poetical language, listen, listen, poetical language by referring to Archetypes by referring to things larger and grander than what's going on in the immediate historical situation lifts that message to the realm of universal human experience. You follow me? You follow me? In that way, even those who are far removed from the historical situation of the prophet, like us, can read themselves into the text. That's what poetry does. The message becomes both particular and universal, and that can only be achieved by the poetic form of the text. Now, in other words, God wanted Micah to write a poem in these dire circumstances so that we, sitting here in this room, so far removed from the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem, can find ourselves in that siege too. So all of that was just set up for me to invite you and what in fidelity to this text to consider how you feel besieged right now. And I hope you know exactly what I mean. Besieged is what almost all of us feel almost all of the time. We know what it is to be besieged by worry, to wake up in a sweat with all the uncertainties of life clawing at your attention like a pack of hungry animals on a carcass. We know what it is to be besieged by work, to feel overwhelmed by a thousand decisions and tasks, some of which we feel competent complete, to complete, others which we do not. We know what it is to be besieged by children and family, and though we love them, though we lay our lives down for them, they represent an unrelenting commitment to die to ourselves daily, hourly, and serve other people, and that is hard. We know what it is to be besieged by doubt. We know what it is to be besieged by despair, to wonder if God even exists, to yearn for the horizon to dance once again with the light of morning, but to be tempted to believe that the light will never again come. We know what it is to be besieged by the soul-tearing sorrow that every one of us faces. It's a sorrow that none of us feels equal to, 
and yet all of us must bear the sorrow of knowing that one day we must say goodbye to those we love or else they must say goodbye to us. We know what it is to be besieged. And so, gash yourself, Gashing's daughter. This is Micah's message. Gash yourself, Gashing's daughter. They have laid siege against us. Now, what hope could we possibly have in the midst of such assaults? And that brings us to number two, the deliverance from the siege. So the Lord is not content to leave his people languishing under the siege. Right into this hopeless situation, Micah begins to draw the contours of their deliverance. He says, and you, Bethlehem of Ephrath, and you, Bethlehem of Ephrath, the least of Judah's clans, from you shall come one for me, whose origins are from ancient times, from days of yore. So above the sounds of the crashing, battering rams and the shovels tumbling under their walls, Micah stands and delivers this promise of God. Fear not, children of God. The Lord will bring forth a deliverer. He shall come from the town of David, Bethlehem of Ephrath, the least of Judah's clans, but his pedigree will stretch back to ancient times. And then Micah tells us what the deliverer will accomplish. He says, and he shall stand, and he shall stand, and he shall shepherd his people with the might of the Lord his God. And he shall stand and shepherd his people. This deliverer of David's line will not be powerless and impotent to save like Hezekiah was. When the true judge of Israel comes, he will not be struck on the cheek by the rod of Assyria. He shall stand. He shall stand in their midst. He shall stand in their midst and not shrink back. And he will do so in the might of of the Lord, by the pride of the name of the Lord his God. And when he comes to rule, then Micah says, and they shall dwell secure. And they shall dwell secure. For his name shall be great to the ends of the earth. They shall dwell secure. Think of what that would have meant to the people who were in the midst of the most terrifying insecurity any of them had ever faced. The Assyrians were leaning the entire weight, all their, all their weight upon the walls of Jerusalem. And the walls were built precisely for security and safety, but they could hear the walls crumbling. They could hear the walls cracking and their sense of safety and security in this world crumbling and cracking right along with it. But Micah says, when the deliverer comes, you shall dwell secure. And think of what that means to us. Every one of us knows that whatever security and safety that we have been able to muster and gather around us in this world could crumble at any moment. And we spend so much of our lives building those walls with our investments and our insurance and our diets and our upward mobility. But if you've been alive long enough, you know that it only takes one phone call for all of it to start to crumble. You know this. She's gone. The deal fell through. 
The prognosis is bleak. The papers are filed. All it takes is one phone call and a few words, and everything that we have built starts to crumble. Despite the fact that we often behave to the contrary, we know deep down that security is not guaranteed in this world, that we are owed nothing, and that even if we manage to pass through life charmed at every turn, that great translation of life that we call death stands waiting to dismantle all that we've built to protect us. But when the deliverer comes... Micah says, when the deliverer comes, he shall stand, he shall shepherd them in the might of the name of the Lord his God. When he stands in our midst, Micah says, the walls will always hold. When he stands in our midst, those thoughts that endlessly harass us will be shut up. When he stands in our midst, our enemies, including our greatest enemy, death, will be turned back from the walls and be defeated. He himself, Micah says, he himself shall be our peace. And that is the promise the Lord brings through Micah to his people in the midst of the siege. And can you imagine, can you just imagine what such a promise would feel like in the midst of that siege? Can you imagine the peace that such a promise would deliver? Can you imagine God speaking this promise to you right now? In this moment, you shall dwell secure. You shall dwell secure. People of God, you shall dwell secure. And the promise is for us as well. But as marvelous as that is, as marvelous as it is, there is something about this promise that I skipped over. And now in order to see how we enter the security of that protection, Let's consider it. So number three, how do we enter that deliverance? And the answer might be different than you think. So listen again to Micah. He says, therefore, this is in the middle, therefore, shall he give them over? He says, there's one coming forth for me from Bethlehem. And then therefore, shall he give them over till the time the woman in labor bears her child and the rest of his brothers come back with the Israelites till the time the woman in labor bears her child. Therefore shall he give them over. Now this is a shortened form of something we see a lot throughout the Old Testament. And the longer form is he shall give them over to their enemies. See this all over the place. This is essentially what Micah is saying. Therefore he shall give them over to their enemies. And that is strange. That's a very strange therefore. Because God says, in the midst of the siege, my people cry out to me for salvation, and I send them a deliverer, a shepherd who's going to stand in their midst and make them dwell secure. He will be their peace. Therefore, I will give them over to their enemies. That's very strange. It's almost nonsensical, but it's only nonsensical if we expect God to fulfill his promises immediately after he gives them. And he doesn't. He doesn't. We know that if you've read the Bible, you know this. In this case, he gives a vague timeline for when this deliverer will come. He says, he will come 
He, he will arrive. I will give you over to your enemies until the woman in labor bears her child and the rest of his brothers come back with the Israelites. In other words, the siege will remain until the woman in labor bears her child. And there is something exceedingly disheartening about that. If we're being honest, there's something very disheartening about that, something that might even tempt us to distrust this God who is making the promise of our deliverance. I will make you dwell secure someday in the future, but until that day, I will give you over to your enemies. I will give you over to your doubts. I will give you over to your sorrow. I will give you over to your pain. And so the promise of God, the, the promise God gives to his people in the midst of the siege is not about him lifting his mighty hand and his outstretched arm like he did in the Exodus and delivering them and destroying the Assyrians right now. Rather, the promise, listen, the promise that God gives to his people in the middle of the siege is wait. Wait for the deliverer. He shall come, but right now, wait. In the midst of the siege, wait. Wait for the promised deliverer. Wait for the shepherd who will stand in your midst and cause you to dwell secure. And here is where I tell you that God's people are more magnificent in their waiting than any arrival they could possibly conjure in this world. The people of God are more magnificent in their waiting than in any deliverance that they could conjure for themselves. Now, as it turned out, the Lord actually literally did deliver his people from the siege of the Assyrians. You know, they turned back, they went to fight elsewhere, and we might be tempted to think that, oh, well, the, the waiting for fulfillment was short then. Look, you know, the Assyrians left, and now we dwell secure but I have to break your heart because that's not true. They didn't dwell secure for long because then the Babylonians came a few decades later and finished the job and destroyed Jerusalem and carted them all off into exile. So whatever security God's people possessed was burned in the fires that destroyed their city and was exiled from their own hearts as they were forcibly removed to Babylon where they hung their musical instruments, the instruments that they used to use in the temple to praise God, they hung them on the trees and they sat next to the rivers and wept. And so even in their exile, the word came again, wait, wait for your deliverance. He shall give them over till the time the woman in labor bears her child. And so God people heard this promise once again, while they wept in Babylon. Wait for your deliverance. Wait, people of God, for your deliverance. Wait on the Lord. And they waited 70 years, and finally they were sent back to their homeland, and yet in those 70 years, the shepherd had not come. They waited another generation, and he had not arrived. And while the Romans came in to take Israel as a tribute state, still they waited. Another generation passed, and still they waited. How long, O oh Lord, was their cry? How long, O oh Lord? But one night, three Persian magi see a star rise above the horizon. This was no ordinary star. To them, that star had a message that a king was born in Israel. And so they mounted their camels and they rode across the desert 
to go pay him tribute with gifts in their arms. They go to the palace of Herod and they say, we saw the star of the king, where is he? And Herod is troubled, of course, because no king had been born in his household that night. And so he summons the the wise men, the, the experts in the law, and they say, and he asks them, where is the shepherd king? Where is the promised Messiah to be born? And do you know where they, in their brains, came out with the scripture to tell him? Micah chapter 5. So Herod says, where is he to be born? And the, the experts in the law say, and you, Bethlehem of Ephrath, and you, Bethlehem of Ephrath, the least of Judah's clans, from you shall come forth one for me and shepherd my people. So the day had come. Finally, the day had come. After hundreds of years of waiting, the day had finally come, and all the long years and generations and centuries of waiting had culminated in this day. And the Magi went to Bethlehem, and there they saw a man, and they saw a woman holding a child in her arms. The woman in labor had borne her child, and now all God's people would dwell secure. He would be their peace. The waiting was at an end, except that it wasn't. Because as this child grew into the stature of man, of a man, he did claim to be a king. He did claim to be the shepherd. He did claim to be this one that God would raise up for Micah 5. He was saying all the right words, but he wasn't much acting like the deliverer under whose reign all God's people would dwell secure. And at the end of his life, he rode into Jerusalem, if you'll remember, and he appeared to everyone that threw their cloaks on the ground under his feet as he walked in and shouted, Hosanna. It appeared to everyone that this was the shepherd, and he was about to stand in their midst and make them dwell secure and shepherd them in the might of the Lord by the pride of the name of the Lord his God. All the long years they were tempted to doubt God's goodness because he gave them constantly over to their enemies while they awaited the fulfillment of this promise. And now he has come at long last. He has arrived. And this generation will be the ones to see the glory of the Lord's shepherd the glory of the Lord's king revealed. But going into Jerusalem, Jesus submitted himself to false accusations, to the injustices of a rigged court system. He presented his face to their fists, his back to their whips, his head to their thorns, And in every way, the judge of Israel offered his cheek to the rod of his oppressors. He was just another Hezekiah, impotent to save. And finally, he offered up his body to be pierced upon a Roman instrument of execution, and there he breathed his last. And you cannot imagine, none of us can imagine just how crestfallen these people were who truly believed that this man was the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. They had waited, and they had waited, and they had waited, 
And now their best hope of deliverance was himself destroyed. But here's what they did not understand. All those hundreds of years ago when Micah announced the birth of the shepherd, he told the people that until the Lord, until he was born, the Lord would give them over to their enemies. And, you know, what a, as we mentioned, what a terrible thing to say to your people who are in the midst of a siege. How could they continue to trust in a God who would promise them deliverance and then say, but until that time, I shall give you over? And that's a real question for us, too. Yes? But here's what they missed. Here's what we often miss as well. As Jesus descended from one degree of humiliation and death to the next, in that final week of his life, what we're witnessing is Christ handing himself over to his enemies. Maybe even more to the point, he is handing himself over to our enemies. And that is one of the miracles of the incarnation. Jesus becomes so identified with us. And we go back and read Micah's prophecy, what we really read is that God will give his only son over to his enemies. God never laid a burden on his people that Christ himself was unwilling to bear. That's how closely knit his identity was to us. And in that giving over, in that giving over, we see our salvation. Jesus was given to his enemies and defeated them. He was given over to injustice and he crushed it. He was given over to anxiety and abandonment and he stripped them of their power. He was given over to death and three days later triumphed over the grave. And then he ascended to heaven to sit at God's right hand. But before he left, he promised something. He said, surely I will come for you. Surely at the end of the age I will arrive in glory and I shall stand in your midst in that day and I shall shepherd you and you shall dwell secure. And another prophet said it like this in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He shall stand in their midst, and they shall dwell secure. So, brothers and sisters, just as our people did thousands of years ago, we too wait for the arrival of our Lord. We too await the promised deliverer. But we know more than the people in Micah 5 knew who were besieged by the Assyrians. We know that Christ gave himself over to his enemies and that all our salvation is bound up in him. And therefore, we know that any enemies that we encounter while we wait his return, wait for his return, can never harm us. Those enemies will never breach the walls. He can ne we, we can never in this age be free of the conviction that he will fight for us 
He can never sink our conviction of God's goodness in asking us to await his deliverance because he has already sent his son in the middle of history, not just at the end of history in the glorious coming of the Lord, but he has sent him in the middle of history to say, listen, you shall dwell secure and he shall be your savior. He shall be the shepherd that comes in the might of the Lord. And so we wait. People of God, we wait and we wait, and we are more magnificent in our waiting than any arrival that we could achieve in this life by our own conjuring. In the midst of the siege, we wait. And of course, that doesn't mean that we don't work for justice. Of course, of course we do. It doesn't mean that we don't establish some sense of security in this life. Of course we do. It only means that we understand that in building those walls, all of them are only partial. None of them has the strength of the security, the shepherd who will come and stand in our midst. None of them has the security that the shepherd promises. And so all of our trust of our security must be fixed upon him. Why? Because he himself is our peace. And so let me just close by saying this. Last week, this, this past week, I learned something. The song that we just sang before I got up here, Oh Holy Night, uh, was first written in French. Did you know this? I didn't know this. First written in French. And we all know what a magnificent song it is in English, but there are some subtleties present in the French that are lost in the translation. The first chorus, literally being translated, says, people, to your knees, People, to your knees, wait for your deliverance. People, to your knees, wait your deliverance. But the next chorus is something altogether different, something that can only be commanded in the light of the hope that is delivered by Christ's first advent. First chorus, people, to your knees, wait for your deliverance. Second chorus, people, to your feet, Sing your deliverance. People, to your feet, sing your deliverance. And that is our invitation this Advent. In the midst of the siege, however it looks for you, however it looks for your family, people, to your knees, wait for your deliverance. But at the same time, we have seen the first fruits of our deliverance in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of that siege, therefore, people, to your feet, and sing your deliverance. Amen? Amen. And this table represents both of those movements. When we come to take the bread and drink the cup, we are ingesting Christ's promise. You shall dwell secure. At this table, Christ has set your salvation, his body broken, his blood poured out. And no matter who or what is pounding at the walls of your life, you are invited to come here and remember by eating and drinking that he himself is our peace. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you have made us to await your return. And I pray that you would 
awaken inside of us an impulse to humble ourselves and apprentice ourselves to the waiting. That you will glorify yourself in your people's patience. And I pray that in our patience, in our waiting, that you would deliver to us a real sense of who you are, a real ache for the coming king who will make us to dwell secure. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. We come now to the table of God, the table that Christ has set and spread in this wilderness before you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.